write the five solas of Scripture, faith, grace, Christ, and God's glory. So these are the five pillars, the five core truths of the Reformation, and I would also say the five core truths of Christianity. What are these pillars that we need to experience salvation? That's what we're working through. And this week, I bring us up to the second week off of Scripture is faith alone, sola fide. In a lot of ways, this is kind of the crown jewel of all of them. I mean, this is kind of the treasure that Luther rediscovers at the core of the gospel. And this is what one guy said, the greatest revolution in human history apart from Christ is Luther rediscovering this treasure. I mean, this is some Nick Cage national treasure level type treasure. Like this is the glory of the gospel that he rediscovers in faith and faith alone. As we talk about it, it's so fundamental to our belief system. We'll say that. It's so fundamental to our faith. This word in the New Testament appears over 300 times. John almost uses it 100 times alone. I mean, it is what Luther would say. This idea of faith and faith alone is what the entire church stands or falls on. Right, the second most influential reformer was John Calvin. He says this idea of faith alone is the hinge on which all of the Christian religion turns. So as we're talking about this, of faith and faith in God alone saves, listen to Calvin's quote on this. So without faith alone, the glory of Christ is extinguished, religion is abolished, the church is destroyed, and the hope of salvation utterly overthrown. Let me translate is kind of a big deal. Like, this is kind of what it is all about. You remove this idea of faith alone. We remove the gospel. We remove the good news. So we're looking at sola fide. Faith and faith alone is what saves. And so as we faith, here's the one to go this morning. I want to help us. Okay, this is such a big deal. So how do we define it? How did Luther discover it? It's probably best to say rediscover it because it was always there, but it got buried underneath religion. And if I said rediscover it, it messed my D thing up. So we're going with how to, how to define it. How did Luther discover it? And what do we do with it? So that's where we're going this morning as we look at sola fide. Now we just throw this word around a lot. and I think it's lost a lot of its meaning. Yes, I have faith. I'm a man of faith. George Michael's singing about it. Everybody's got to have faith. And it's just this, you know, oh yeah, we have faith. Well, what does that mean? And I think we've made it so superficial of, oh yeah, it's just you know, this kind of thing we got to have. But it is a rich word. They're kind of, there's, they translate it even differently. There's a couple ingredients that go into this word. It's kind of like a good, rich wine. You ever have a wine that has kind of a lot of depth to it? And you kind of read the bottle and it's got an oaky undertone and a berry finish and all this. And so that's kind of what faith is. Now, we're all about kind of addiction recovery ministry, so if you're an alcoholic, think of like a nice, fine chili. You know, there's multiple ingredients to it, so think of it, don't think of wine, think of like a nice, good chili with a lot of different undertones, all right? It's like a good bread, like there's multiple things baked into it. And so when we're talking about faith, I want you to understand, not just superficially, yeah, I have faith, like what are the key ingredients that go into this idea, this word of faith? So let's kind of start unpacking it. Let's look at one of the key ingredients. It is understanding believing. Kind of this idea of our head. There's this cognitive side of it. 
So what we just celebrated, the Son of God came to die on a cross to pay the penalty of your sins. Yes, you have to understand that that happened, and you need to believe that, that Jesus came to die for your sins. You don't just have generic faith. I mean, when you say faith, you've got to say, what is your faith in? So in this kind of week, as we're talking about faith, it's assumed we're talking about faith in Jesus, faith in the cross. You understand that that happened, who Jesus is, what the cross was about, and do you believe he actually came to die for your sins? I mean, this is a part of this is why we do missions. This is key so people can be saved. But then kind of the Bible backs it down. Yes, they need to believe in Jesus, but how can they believe if they've never heard? How can they hear if people don't go? That's part of why we go and do missions. Because the only way to experience salvation is faith in Jesus, and you need to understand that and believe that. This is a key ingredient. Now, this is interesting. So as you look at we study the Reformation, medieval scholasticism kind of divided this into two camps. And it's important to talk about medieval scholasticism for two reasons. One, it makes me feel wicked smart just talking about it, right? You know, that's like something that dude on Jeopardy knows, like medieval scholasticism for 200, Alex. Like, that's, that's some daily double type wisdom right there. But less than my, not important as my pride, is this the idea that I think, so when we say medieval, that, that's just the time that this church existed. I think we see seeds of that. So that one of the seeds that the medieval church taught about faith is they split it up. You need, you know, there was explicit faith and implicit faith. So explicit faith, which I would say biblical faith, is faith with reason, is faith understanding. I understand who Jesus was. I understand that he came to die for me, and I'm putting my faith explicitly in that. Now, the church, the Catholic church at the time, said, well, there's also just kind of implicit faith. It's generic faith without understanding. Just kind of, hey, have faith in the church, and we'll take care of you. And they said, that faith, that is enough to save you. And I still see this all the time in people I love, in my family. It's just kind of this implicit kind of generic faith without really understanding. But biblically speaking, faith is to believe. It's to understand what your faith is in. Let me help you kind of understand maybe a good illustration of the difference between explicit and implicit faith. So for the last, you know, couple years, couple decades, millennia, the Browns have asked for your implicit faith. Faith without reason! Just trust the organization. It's going to go well. And you believe, and I believe. Why? Because I, I just have faith in the Browns. Why? It's insanity. There's no real reason. There's no, like, actual, you know, logical belief to it. Now, I will give it to the Browns. They are turning a corner. And then now you may get to a point where you actually have explicit faith in John Dorsey. You can say, no longer, I just have faith in the organization. No, I have explicit faith. I feel like he is going to draft good people, and I believe that with good reason. You're putting your faith in a person. You see that difference? And so that's what we're saying. We're saying faith in Jesus. It's believing he was who he said he was, the Son of God that came to die for you, and you believe that he overcame death and offers you forgiveness. You believe that. You've got to understand, sometimes that is just all we think of with faith. And again, there's a fullness to faith that goes beyond that. And you say all the time, you know, why do you, believe, why do you feel good about your salvation? Well, I believe. I believe Jesus dies, died for my sins, rose again. 
Well, it says the devil believed that as well. So there's more than just believing those facts. But belief is an, accent, it's an essential ingredient. It's like the waffle fries to my Chick-fil-A number one meal. You can't take it away. It's essential. But there's more to it. And that's how you need to understand with faith. There's more to just believing those facts. So kind of what is some of the other side of understanding a definition of this word? It's beyond just knowing the facts. It's hoping. It's trusting. It is putting all of your faith, hope, your assurance in Jesus for your salvation. It's putting your life and your heart in his hands. It's not just knowing that he died for your sins. Here's a great quote that I think kind of brings out some of this distinction. So faith, it denotes not just simple belief that carries intellectual assent, but belief that cleaves to the Savior with all their heart. The man believes in the sense that he abides in Christ and Christ in him. Faith is not just accepting certain things as true, but beyond that, it is trusting a person and that person is Christ. You see more of the fullness of this idea of faith, of trusting Jesus, not just having faith or having faith in the church. One of my favorite examples of really kind of bringing out the fullness of faith, it's, uh, I actually originally think I heard it from Pastor Rick, and this idea of Charles Blondin. He's one of the greatest tightrope walkers probably of all time. So famously, this dude would set up a tightrope across Niagara Falls. I mean, he would walk across the falls. One time, he actually, in the middle of the falls, like sat down, cooked an omelet, ate the omelet over the falls, got up, and walked. Like, dude was legit. Like, he was one of the greatest of all times. At one point, tightroping over Niagara Falls had a wheelbarrow. Goes to the crowd, and everybody's watching, like, who believes I can, you know, wheelbarrow this across the falls? And they're like, yeah, Blondin, you're the goat. You can do it. Everybody believed, right? So he goes across, and he comes back, and he goes, who believes I could actually wheelbarrow this wheelbarrow across the falls with somebody in it? And everybody's like, yeah, you, I know you can do it. I believe. And then he goes, who's getting in? And I'm sure there was like a nervous laughter like that when he asked that. <laughs> so as I heard it recounted, in the crowd, dude actually raises his hand. Says, I'll do it. Sits down in the wheelbarrow. And he wheels him across the falls in a wheelbarrow on a tightrope. Now I think all of us felt that shift to the fullness of faith. That difference between all that crowd, oh yeah, I believe, I believe you can do that. Okay, get in, the, get in the wheelbarrow. Actually sitting in, trusting, putting your hope and your life in his hands, that's the more of the fullness of faith we're talking about. Not just believing died for you, of saying, okay, Jesus, I'm going all in with you. All my hope and trust is in the cross and you being who you say you are. My faith is in you being faithful. That is a fullness of faith. Trusting in Jesus is your only hope. And that's where the idea of sola comes out. Sola fide, it is not just I put my faith in Jesus, it's my faith in Jesus alone. See, the church at the time, when you're talking about Scripture, faith, grace, Christ, and God's glory, they don't disagree with any of those. But John Calvin would say it this way, but they falsely and ridiculously removed one adjective from the equation of 
alone. Like that is it. That is how you are right with God by putting your faith in this, in this alone, not in your performance, not in your religion, not in all your good works. That is not your hope. Your hope is in Jesus, in the cross, and that is it. I believe that, and I'm putting all my faith in that. That alone. Look at these formulas. What Luther was uncovering is salvation is faith alone. Your only hope is trusting in Jesus for salvation. What the church was offering, and I want you to listen up too, because all of us, I think, default at this bottom one. Is yeah, I can have salvation by, you know, I have my faith in God, but you better be a good person. You better be holy enough, and then where the times where you're not holy enough, you better get enough religion in your life, and then you'll be right with God. And that is the default that all of us start with, of trying to earn God's love and climb our way to him. Yeah, we believe in Jesus, but yet we got to be good enough. This is what separates Christianity from every world religion. Every world religion tells you that you need enough religion. There's things you need to do to be right with God, to earn his love, to be righteous. And the insanity, the scandal of the gospel says, no, it is not about me being good enough to now feel like I can earn God's love. It is fully trusting that I am not, but he died for me, that I am forgiven in the perfect life he lived. God looks at me and sees Jesus, sees holiness not on our performance, on faith and faith alone in Jesus. That is sola fide. That is how we are right with God, only based off of our faith in Christ. So I want to look at from there, how did, and again, discovers the wrong word, because it has always been, this is how God has always treated people, even from Genesis. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteous. This has always been the plan, but the church kind of buried this treasure. And how was it that Luther began to rediscover the wonders and the scandal of the gospel? Let's dive into that. So how did he rediscover this? Well, Luther, he's a brilliant guy, actually. Rick did a great job kind of giving the whole landscape. Let's look down at his life a little bit. He was actually pursuing law. He was going to be a lawyer, a brilliant guy. And as he's in law school, gets trapped in this insane monsoon. So true story, Luther at this point, as he recounts, feels like he's going to die in the midst of this lightning storm. He says in that moment, that lightning smacked right next to him. And in this moment, he thinks he's going to die. He just yells out, you know, God, I'll be a monk. Just save me. You ever like in a moment of crisis, just yell out a dumb promise to God? God, I swear I'll never be to my kids. You know, just don't make me get fired. I'll, you know, I'll never get drunk. Yeah, me neither. We not, we none of you do that, I'm sure. But so Luther does that, and that's actually his journey. Wrestling with his own mortality, because of this promise, he actually drops out of law school and then decides to become a monk. Again, he, here's the interesting thing about the Reformation. You could think it happened because Luther disagreed with the church. I think a deeper, more original reason that the Reformation happened is Luther genuinely believed what the church was selling. That, okay, if I just do enough religious stuff, maybe God then will accept me. And nobody threw themselves into religion with more vigor than Luther. 
I mean, dude was crazy the way he would just vigilantly pursue religion. Listen to his own quote about himself. If ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. So no, monkery is not a word, but I think you get the point of the quote. He's saying, look, if I can be at peace with God, if I could earn righteousness by doing enough religious deeds, if anybody can get it, it would have been me. I mean, dude went after it. Here's the thing. So many people, I think, that just kind of flippantly believe, yeah, I'm going to heaven apart from faith in Christ, make two crucial errors that Luther dare not make. Now, everybody thinks they're going to heaven. You know, when's the last time you talked to somebody, and you're like, hey, what do you think about the afterlife? Yeah, I'm probably going to hell. I don't think I'm going to make it. Probably going to Like, nobody believes that. But yet, we have hope. The question is, is it warranted hope? Here's the two mistakes I think people crucially make often. You're either wildly overestimating your own goodness or seriously underestimating the holiness and justice of God. Luther dare not make either of those mistakes. Like, think about it. If you feel like you don't have a real faith in Christ, that you put your trust in him, do you really think with all the jacked up stuff that you've done in your life, like with all the messed up things that you've said throughout your life, like just think about last week, not even counting your whole life. It says God judges your heart. It's not even stuff you've done or said. Every messed up thought you've had towards somebody. I mean, every selfish motive that is spilled out of you with all the junk in here, do you really think at the moment you're going to stand before Almighty Holy God and He's going to ask you, are you righteous? And you're going to go, yeah, I think I'm good. I got that. It's foolish. That is a foolish plan if you really think that you're going to somehow earn your way to heaven and one the scrolls of every messed up word, thought, and deed or laid before you that you're going to somehow earn heaven. Luther knew both of those weren't true, that God was utterly holy and he was utterly sinful. So what was his answer? He threw himself into religion as his hope. Let me tell you two stories that really prove this case. So I was raised, you know, Catholic, going to confession, and that was, again, a part of it. You had to go to confession to kind of purge yourself of these sins. And Luther genuinely believed, okay, is that true? Famously would sit in confession with a priest for six hours. Can you imagine sitting there for six hours, being raised Catholic? I tried to keep that under six minutes flat every time. I made up the same three things, like, I don't know, I didn't listen to my parents, I was mean to my siblings, I didn't do my homework. Like, can I get out of here? Please tell me prayers to pray so I can pretend to pray them and leave. Like, that was my gig, but he thought, no, I really believe this. So you imagine six hours. He even to the point where if he couldn't think of, you know, a, a negative selfish thought to confess, he confessed his pride of not knowing any negative thoughts. Because he really believed, okay, religion, I need to do these religious things to be right with God. And of course, there's no peace in that. Trying to earn God's love by doing enough religion. And then he works his way to Rome, kind of the center of his religion, thinking, okay, finally, this will get me where I need to be. So one of the other things that he did, he climbs the sacred steps, the Scala Sancta. You can remember that one. That would be on Jeopardy one day too. Scala Sancta. And it was 28 steps that he had to climb on his hands and knees and say the Our Father on every step 
and then that would purge him of his sins, or it could help get one of his loved ones out of purgatory. So he climbs these steps, says the Our Father on his knees, every step, and he gets to the top of the stairs, and he has this thought. Man, it's a shame my parents aren't dead. Because if they were dead, then I could have got them out of purgatory. But now that they're not dead, this actually doesn't help for them. And then he thinks, well, it's good that Mima's dead, because then maybe I can get her out of purgatory. And he's just in the midst of this silliness, at the top of these stairs, with the cold marble still on his knees, he has this thought. What if this isn't true? Like, what if this is just one big religious ruse? Have you ever had a crisis of faith like that? Like, man, is this really real? Like, can this really be true? And not just doubting God, but he was doubting the religious system. And at this point, he's in an all-out crisis of faith. And that leads him to this tower experience. At this point, he's beginning to despise God because it only makes him feel more dirty to think of the holiness of God. And as much as maybe the 95 Thesis kind of set the Reformation in motion, let me read to you the spark, the match that lit the whole thing on fire. This is Luther in the tower in Germany alone with the scriptures. I want want you to hear from his own words. There I was at last by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I finally gave heed to the context of the words, namely, in the righteousness of God. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed as it is written. He who through faith is righteous shall live. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel. Namely, the passive righteousness with which the merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous. Hear that I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise through open gates. Thus, a totally other face of the entire scripture itself showed it to me. So here he is trying to earn God's love. He meditates on this wonderful scripture For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And he finally sees it. You don't have to be religious enough to earn God's love. You'll never be pious enough. You don't need to be good enough and do enough good deeds for God to love you. You will never be good enough. He finally sees the gospel open up that you will never be good enough. But if you put your faith in Jesus and all your hope in him alone, Jesus will love you based on the cross. I mean, are you really believing that and whether you're a Christian and kind of getting into the lie of it, or you've never heard that, I want you to see the magic of sola fide, that you don't have to earn God's love. If you trust in him, he will see you as he sees his son. And that's kind of where I want to end with this a little bit. This idea that God accepts you based on Jesus, if that is true, you can rest. 
You can stop in your fear that you're not good enough. Stop in your shame and worry that God doesn't love you because of all your sin. If it is based off of what Jesus has done, you can have assurance. If you die tonight, you will spend eternity with him. If it was based off of your performance, well then yes, you could fear maybe I'm not good enough. But to quote the wonderful therapist from Goodwill Hunting, it's not about you. Like, don't you get that? If it's not about your performance, well, then how can you lose it? It's about Jesus and his faithfulness. But then for sure, I got to address this second thing. Do good works. So that's the big criticism, right? You mean to tell me I just need to pray for forgiveness of sins and I can live however I want? No, and stop talking like that. No, of course. Now, you can't earn God's love. It doesn't work that way. You can't earn God's love, but your works, how you live your life, are essential. That doesn't mean, and here's one of the best illustrations for that. Again, it doesn't make you a child of God, your performance. But your life and how you live does matter. So I'd ask you this if you're a parent. You know, how good do your kids have to be for you to love them? Now, every mom in here is like, oh, my goodness, I love my babies. There's nothing my babies can do to make me not love them. Now, you mean to tell me your love for your kids is purer than God's love for you? If your kids were to ever doubt, oh, I'm not good enough, you know, do my parents still love me? But yet you sit here today and you doubt God loves you because you're not performing and doing good enough. Now, does my kids' behavior matter? Yes, it is essential as my kids that you not be hooligans, that you be decent people and live this out, of course. If you truly give your faith to Christ, put your faith in Christ, you will live it out and be different. And that's where James comes in. That's the main criticism where James says, wait a minute, faith alone doesn't save. If you study the book, he's talking about dead faith. He's talking about just some of that easy believism that we talked about in the beginning. Where, yeah, you just believe Jesus, but you haven't put your faith in him. If you are rooted in Christ, fruit will bear. I mean, you got to see that connection between root and fruit. If you root your life into him, it will begin to show. And that's the best test of do you have genuine faith? Has there been some signs of life change? Of course not perfect. We're still sinners. But you should live it out, and it is essential. In some ways, it's a question of motivation, too. You know, is it, do I have to do good works for God to love me? Then in that, you can never truly do good works. Everything, then, is just selfish. I'm just doing this to earn God's love. But if you're accepted in Christ, what's a better motivation? Love and gratitude to live it out or fear? Galatians puts it this way. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision or, or circumcision or uncircumcision counts for anything. That's religion. Look, doing these religious steps don't make you right for God, but only faith working through love. When you put your faith in Christ, you should start to become more loving and more holy, although it doesn't earn you God's love. It's a natural outpouring. The last thing I want to say particularly if you've never done this. 
would you stop with all the religion, stop with all trying to earn God's love and receive the wonderful gift of faith and faith alone and peace with God? I'm actually going to bring out a couple members of the band right now, and here's the deal. My hope and prayer for you is the same prayer that Luther experienced, that in the tiredness of chasing religion, just reading the truth of the scriptures, he said the gates of paradise were open wide. As I was praying through and studying Romans 1.17, preparing for this message, I heard that song, Let It Rain Come Down. Open the floodgates of heaven. That's my hope for you this morning. That in all your tiredness of trying to please God and be right with him, that the gates of paradise would open wide to you and you would rest. That it is by faith and faith alone that you are at peace with God. So I'm just going to put a bunch of scripture up there to remind you of this truth. Read that scripture. You don't even need to sing along. I just want Gary to sing this prayer over you that God would rain down his love, that the floodgates of heaven would open up as we look to his word. We feel the rain of your love. We feel the wind of your spirit. And now the heartbeat of heaven, let us hear. We feel the rain of your love. We feel the wind of your spirit. And now the heartbeat of heaven. Let us hear. Let it rain. Let it rain. Open the flame. 
hope for you this morning as the love of God would rain down on you and you would finally rest. You would stop trying to earn God's love and be good enough and realize you will never get there. If you would only put your faith in him, you could rest and be assured of his love for you. You will spend eternity with him if you put your faith in him because he is faithful. I don't call you to works in more religion this morning. I call you to faith and rest. You bow your heads with me. Father, please, would you let it rain right now? Would you open up the floodgates of heaven? all the tired people in here today that we would finally rest. We would feel your embrace and allow you to carry us there. God, we can't do it. We are not enough, but you are. And we put all our hope in Jesus this morning. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.